0: And welcome to the MBM Podcast, where you'll learn to master the business of yoga. MBM is a proud part of the Wonder Barn Podcast Network, and I'm your host, Amanda Kingsmith. I'm a 500-hour registered yoga teacher, a yoga business coach, and a total business geek. Here at MBM, you'll learn everything you need to know to create a sustainable yoga business by learning from myself and guests from around the world about how they built their yoga businesses and about how you too can become a successful yoga teacher, studio owner, and much more. All right, let's dive in. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Mastering the Business of Yoga. As always, I'm super grateful and excited that you were joining me for today's episode of the show. Today on the podcast, we have another awesome guest. I'm very excited to be joined by Rachel Cook. Rachel is on a mission to end entrepreneurial poverty of time, energy, and money for women business owners. And we're going to talk all about what this is and how to do this. She's an MBA-trained business growth strategist, founder of The CEO Collective, a host of the Promote Yourself to CEO podcast, and a best-selling author. And over the last 16 years, she's helped thousands of entrepreneurs design predictably profitable businesses without the hustle and burnout that doing all the things inevitably inevitably accomplishes. So if that sounds up your alley, which it certainly sounds up mine, especially in this current chapter of life that I'm in, uh, this episode is probably for you. So we're going to dive into Rachel's background, her her business, entrepreneurial poverty, like I mentioned, and so much more. So let's get into it. Rachel, welcome to the show today. Thank you so much for having me, Amanda. It's good to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to chat with you. And I'm curious, where are you joining me from today? I am in my office in downtown Richmond, Virginia. Oh, wonderful. I've never been to Richmond, Virginia, but it sounds like a lovely place to live.
1: I'm kind of an advocate for Richmond right now because... I feel like it's a um, little secret gem of a city. It's really small compared to most cities, but we've got an amazing like food scene, art scene, music scene, and I can work downtown, but have a, you know, my family is just about 15 minutes away at home. I'm obsessed.
0: (laughs) Cool. I love it. Yeah. You've already sold me just with that like (laughs) 10 second pitch. I'm like, yeah, need need to do a trip there. (laughs) I love it. And so there's so much I want to dive into with you, but maybe we can just back up a little bit. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself and your background with entrepreneurship?
1: Absolutely. So like many entrepreneurs, I did not intend to be an entrepreneur. (laughs) I actually um, came from a home with two entrepreneurial parents. So of course, I wanted to rebel against them and become a professional musician and nothing exciting. I was going to be a classic French horn performance major in college, but I accidentally started a couple of businesses while I was in music school. And realized that the market for becoming a professional French horn player was very small. So I transferred to the business school in college um, and ended up loving it, ended up finding a unique space for me with entrepreneurship and small business management. So I stayed for my master's degree. And like many MBAs, I got recruited straight out of my master's program to go into corporate consulting. Fast forward, I burned out ended up on a yoga mat crying and having panic attacks and had kind of the dark night of the soul where do I continue down this path that everybody said was the one that I should be on or do I figure out what I actually want? And I chose option B. So I ended up um, talking with my yoga teacher who turned into my mentor and my best friend. And she's like, Rach, I don't think you want to go back, but can you help me with my studio? And the studio is actually like, I can see the back of the building because it's downtown right across from my current office. And I was like, oh, there's these owner operated businesses with just like one person and maybe a handful of people on their team who didn't have access to someone with my background, who didn't have access to a consultant. Um, And this was 2007, 2008. And so that was honestly the beginning of my entrepreneurial journey starting my business um started as the yogipreneur because i started in the yoga world which i know everyone listening here will love in 2007 2008 back then there were only a few of us working with yoga business owners specifically and over the past 15 16 years uh what has happened is i just keep listening to what my community is asking of me because Like many of y'all probably know, if you're a yoga teacher, you're not just a yoga teacher. Often I have yoga teachers who are also life coaches or nutritionists or whatever else. And so I kept getting more and more amazing entrepreneurs coming to me, listening to what I was sharing and asking how I could support them. So that's kind of the beginning of how it all started was crying on a yoga mat after I burned out from the grind of corporate consulting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I hear you on that one for sure. That's definitely was a part of my journey as well. And I'm curious for you at that point where you hit burnout and you said you, you had those choices between like path A and path B and path B being entrepreneurship. Was that like the very obvious path for you? Like, were you like, Hey, this is definitely like the best step or was there a little bit of kind of grappling with that decision? Like, I'm curious where you were at at that point.
1: It was a lot of grappling for me, um, mainly because I didn't know if I could do entrepreneurship. I knew I I was trained to be a CEO of a business, but starting that business from scratch, I wasn't sure about. Um, and honestly, because my dad is such an opposite personality of me, he's very extroverted and very much like can go network like crazy. And I am not. I was very introverted and the idea of putting myself out there was terrifying. Um, I always thought I'd be like kind of a behind-the-scenes person in a company that then became a CEO or a COO. So yeah, it was a it was a big um, mindset shift for me. It was a big, um, honestly. It's the first time I ever really thought about what I wanted versus what was kind of expected of me. So yeah, there was a lot of grappling. <laughs>
0: Yeah, for sure. That what I want versus what's expected, I think is huge, especially when you've done things like, you know, business training and, you know, worked in corporate and and people applaud that because they understand it. Right. And then when you're like, oh, Hey, I'm going to go help yoga teachers and yoga studio owners with their businesses. People are like, eh? <laughs> what is that about?
1: <laughs> are you okay? I had a lot of people who thought I was having some sort of mental breakdown because they could not understand why I would leave a six-figure job to go start something. And they had, I mean, there was just a lot of um, pushback. Also, I started my company during the last recession. And so, of course, there's a lot of people who like, they're totally in fear and, you know, you need to do the safe thing and go back and get another job. And I was just like, I can't, I will not make it if I have another job. I will be so exhausted and burned out. I can't. (laughs) So, yeah, it was a lot to go through.
0: Yeah, a hundred percent. I definitely hear that. And I'm curious in your initial years as an entrepreneur, specifically working with yoga teachers, yoga studios, what types of you know problems were you helping them solve? What types of work were you doing with them?
1: Yeah. It's so interesting because things have changed so much and a relatively short Time frame, You know, 15 years, you think, well, it's not that different, but it was massively different. Um, back then there was no real social media that people were using for business. Instagram was not around. Um, Facebook was around, but had literally just gotten started. No one had business pages or anything like that. Um, it was very much the foundation, the basics of growing a business. And so the biggest challenge I saw with a lot of the women that I was working with One was there was this desire to just start this business and kind of hope that they could build this plane as they fly it. Like there was never a plan. There was never any crunching the numbers. And unfortunately, I saw a lot of people go severely into debt, take out a lot of loans to get, especially a yoga studio open. And at the time, the idea of having any sort of yoga business that wasn't attached to a studio was very new. Like no one really knew how to do that. Um, so everybody was going all in on a studio, on a brick and mortar space during a recession when people weren't coming into a brick and mortar space. Cause that's the first area they cut, right. Is their expensive hobbies. Um so that was one of the massive ones. But what was exciting is when I started my business, it was very much the beginning of a lot of opportunities happening online and to have non-traditional business models. And that was really exciting to me because suddenly I had clients like Anna Gascelli who has Curvy Yoga and she was able to start and grow this brand without having a brick and mortar studio. And if you follow Curvy Yoga over the last 10 or 12 years, you've seen like what a force that brand has become in the world. Um, I started seeing more and more people just being open to the idea that they could have an amazing career as a yoga teacher and do it in a way that was leveraging the internet, that was leveraging online platforms, that was leveraging streaming video. And that was just really cool to go through.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's a really, really interesting and and cool time to be working in the yoga space. And I think it's interesting to hear because I entered, I guess, started working in the yoga business side in 2016. So close to 10 years after you, but I feel like things were kind of still in sort of the same position. Like there weren't a lot of yoga teachers, you know, working for themselves, probably more than like 2007, 2008, but teachers were still kind of working under the brick and mortar model. And I honestly feel like it's taken like the pandemic to really pivot things and kind of give teachers this sort of push or this nudge to be like, hey, I actually could do this on my own. Like, I don't like what's happening in the studio space, or I'm not making enough money, or I'm not aligned with whatever is going down with the pandemic right now. I'm just going to start my own thing. And I feel like there's just been such a big shift in, in the yoga industry over the last two years. And I've seen more and more yoga teachers just working as independents, which has been really interesting.
1: Yeah, it's been fascinating to watch the impact of the pandemic. And because I've been you know, behind the scenes so long, help being like the the consultant behind the scenes, helping so many entrepreneurs go online over the last 10 years, it was really interesting to see the people who I had supported and watching them be like, oh, this is what Rachel was talking about. This is why I needed to have this branch of my business up and going. Those people were in an amazing spot to quickly transition and keep moving. Um, The people who had really resisted any part of embracing online marketing or an online business model, they they were kind of panicked to catch up.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it yeah, like you said, I completely agree. It's been really interesting to to see the pivot. And so, one thing I'm curious with your story is kind of where Yogipreneur shifts into CEO Collective and kind of what happened for you personally with that journey.
1: Oh gosh, this is a long journey. And of course, right after I officially get like the trademark and all of that for Yogipreneur, I start realizing that my community has evolved. Um, this is something that often happens to be honest. I've, I've seen it happen with a lot of people who start with a very niche brand and five or so years in you realize, Oh, I've kind of outgrown that niche because I'm starting to get a bunch of other people coming into my world. Um, so when I started as the yogipreneur in 2008, I stayed with the yoga community being my primary audience probably about until 2013. And then I created a challenge, a productivity challenge called fired up and focused, and it just kind of exploded. And that really shifted my audience. It shifted my audience from being like 90% yoga related to probably only about 30, 35% were yoga business owners, yoga entrepreneurs. So I'm always looking at my audience to help me navigate, like, what am I doing next? Because when you have a shift like that, if you don't evolve your business alongside what's happening, then you end up with people coming and saying, well, I didn't join your program because I'm not a yoga (laughs) entrepreneur. And I was like, but this will help you. Like everything I have is still solid business strategy. It just was under that, you know, wrapping before. So I decided to shift into Rachel Cook for a few years. And that really just gave me time to figure out what was next, because I think anybody who's gone through a big growth um, period in their business, it can be hard when it sounds so weird to say, I think, but sometimes when you outgrow your vision, your, your initial vision, you hit it, you achieve it, you get on the other side of it. And there's like, okay, where am I going next? And it's very fuzzy. You don't exactly know, <laughs> and that's where I was for a couple of years. So having my personal brand, just putting everything under Rachel Cook, was a great umbrella and a way for me to kind of feel my way through where I wanted to go next. Um, because I, I my vision just wasn't solid yet; like I couldn't really see it. But what ended up happening, as often does, is I did a quick experiment, and I hosted this in person event called the CEO Retreat. Because I've got a 90-day planning process that I've been running in my own business that I've been teaching to a lot of my clients for years, but I'd never publicly talked about um, the importance of having a strategic planning and follow-through process. So I hosted this event. I called it the CEO Retreat. And I thought it was just going to be like a one-time thing. And it turned into something where we had 55 people show up for it. They were all asking for it each and every quarter. And I realized, okay, there's something here. And it also called out something really specific into my audience. I found naming women entrepreneurs, not just entrepreneurs, but CEOs resonated with a different type of entrepreneur. It really was clear to them that this is the place for women entrepreneurs who are ambitious and who do have you know, big goals and want to make a big impact. And it kind of pulled away from people who this was a side hobby. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? And for me, that was exciting because I want to surround myself with women like that, who do have big vision, who do have big dreams, who do want to make a big impact. Um, Not that the side hobby is bad or anything. I think everybody should go after what they want, but it changed the conversation. It elevated the conversation um, in the room. And to me, that was really exciting. So fast forward, we decided to shift the whole business. I basically shut down every online course I'd had. I shut down all of my coaching and decided I was going to rebrand everything under the CEO Collective, which we launched in March, 2020. (laughs) A great time to launch a brand new like brand and offer um, after you've kind of burned down your business.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I bet. What a time to like, I mean, March, 2020, it has a, an amazing ring to it. Like that sounds like a great time if I didn't know what I know now to, to launch a business. But I'm curious, like, how did that, how did that go for you when you're trying to compete with all the noise of like, you know, COVID and, you know, world shutting down, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Well, here's what's hilarious about this. And this has happened a couple of times. So I don't know if I'm a little bit psychic or what. Um, The whole launch that I had mapped out for the CEO collective, I had a whole series of content I had developed. And one of the key messages in that content was around having a sustainable business, meaning a business that is resilient and can weather anything that life can throw at it. And one of the key examples I had in that whole launch was how the year before my entire family got the flu and I could not work for a whole month, but my business continued to grow behind the scenes. And, you know, it turned out COVID was kind of similar. Like people were suddenly getting really sick and their business needed to be able to run itself. So that message somehow was really aligned, like why your business needs to be life-proof, why your business needs to be able to operate without you being the person doing all the things all the time. And what we ended up doing is we were literally halfway through the content leading into open enrollment when they shut down the country. And I immediately jumped into, well, everybody's freaking out. I had a lot of clients who suddenly were not sure what to do. So I ended up hosting a one-day, I don't know what to call it, like a one-day conference almost on, I think it was Monday, March 16th. It was a Monday, like right after they announced everything was closing. And the Friday before I had reached out to a bunch of friends and I said, look, everybody's panicked. How can we help people prepare for whatever's happening. And so we had like a five hour live stream where we talked about everything from getting, you know, reviewing your contracts to um, who you need to call first, the bank, your credit cards, whatever, because there was just so much uncertainty. People didn't know what to do first. So I ended up having a whole business crisis, you know, live event to navigate that. And it ended up being amazing because one, I'm very blessed. I have amazing people that they were all like, yeah. Let me help. And it was something that actually ended up supporting the message I was trying to have with the CEO collective, which is you have to get out of the weeds and be prepared for anything. You have to be resilient and you have to be able to have a business that is life-proof. That is burnout-proof because these things are going to happen. Maybe not COVID, but all of us are going to get sick or have a family member we have to care for or have something happen in our life where our business can slow to a halt if we don't have certain things
0: in place. If you have a yoga studio, listen up. Running a yoga studio has never been more complicated. With all the new ways to interact with your current and potential clients, it's really easy to get overwhelmed. The last thing that you need is complicated studio software, slowing you down and zapping your free time. I know so many studio owners who feel frustrated because they're talking to customer support more than they're talking to their students. That's why I'm super, super excited about this latest update from OfferingTree. OfferingTree has added a lot of new features recently to meet the needs of studios. So check out what they have to offer or book a demo call at OfferingTree.com slash pricing. The right software can help you make more money and spend more time doing what you want to do with your business. And that's why I believe in OfferingTree and the difference their tools can make for yoga studio owners. Who doesn't want to spend more time with students and less time struggling to piece together software? Also, have I mentioned that you can do everything you need to do all in one place with just one payment. So on top of spending less time struggling, you can also spend a little bit less money. I promise I won't be offended if you pause the show for the next minute to head on over to offeringtree.com slash pricing to book a demo call. And of course we have a special discount for you for listening to the show and that's offeringtree.com forward slash mbom. So make sure you check that out. All right, now back to the show. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for sharing that and that's really interesting to hear just you know the way that that all kind of worked out and rolled out and yeah, <laughs> doing something on March 16th that really brings me back to where I was. I was in in Panama freaking out trying to decide if I was going to go back to Canada or not. We ended up going back on the 18th of March. So
1: at least you got back before they started shutting down everything. And that was I mean, it was kind of wild to me, but I just knew that there were certain things you have to do. Like, don't wait for somebody to tell you. I think that's the the biggest challenge is a lot of people lost their businesses over the last few years. And one of the biggest reasons is they don't know how to make decisions or prioritize when faced with a real emergency. Instead, they're like, well, let me just wait and see. Well, the people who were proactive and picked up the phone and started making calls Those were the ones who, I mean, I had clients who were able to renegotiate their rent. And that was before there was any rent relief for, you know, businesses or anything like that. I had clients who were able to um, get support on their expenses or their business cards or whatever. And it's because I was like, be proactive, reach out. You know, if you don't start the process now, you're going to end up in a pile of people who are all in panic mode. And so that's just, I mean, it's kind of the way I roll. I'm like, let's always uh, plan for the worst and hope for the best. And in this last two years, it's definitely proven that to me.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I love what you're saying about just being proactive. Cause I think, uh, one of the studios that I was working with at the time, they, I think the studio owner decided like his metric for shutting down was if schools closed. And I think schools announced they were closing like this Sunday night. So like the 15th of March. And so he basically like, you know, text the management team and the teachers like, okay, we're gonna, you know, tomorrow morning's the last like in-person class or tomorrow's the last day of in-person classes. We're also going to figure out this online thing. And it was like, you know, Monday morning, we're trying to figure out how to do online yoga. And obviously it's evolved immensely since then in in so many regards, but just, you know, pivoting really in like a moment's notice and just not, not worrying about like, oh, is the equipment perfect or is the sound perfect? You know, is the video perfect? Like it was like, let's try this and see what happens and offer this and then improve as we go. And I feel like that was something that that studio in particular did well. That's allowed them to, to like make it through the last couple of years.
1: And you know what the other side of that too, is the people who moved fast, they basically signaled to their community, to their clients. And they basically said, Hey, we know you need us right now. And so we're going to do whatever it takes to make sure you have this, that you have yoga, that you have meditation, that you have breathing, whatever will help during this time. And that trust did follow through for a lot of people, the people who kind of did the wait and see and fell off the radar for months at a time had a much harder time catching up Because by then the trust was broken. They weren't really there for their community. And it's, you know, I'm not trying to put blame or make anybody feel bad, but that's what happens. If you're supposed to be the leader and you can't make decisions and pivot quickly, people lose that feeling of trust that you have their back. I think this is one huge thing that I talk about a ton. It's just as entrepreneurs, you're a leader too. And you're not just leading the people in your business, you're leading the people in your community. And they're looking to you, for guidance. They're looking to you for support. They're looking to you to know that it's okay. And we can get through this. And so I kind of found it really interesting to watch so many people who it was like deer in headlights. They did not know what to do. um, which is understandable, but at the same time, the people who just were like, okay, let's do it. Let's figure it out. They were the ones who built a lot of trust with their communities
0: yeah, a hundred percent. I completely agree with that. And I actually feel like that kind of really connects to what you were talking about, just with you know, doing the CEO retreat and then, you know, building the CEO collective kind of around this idea and using the word CEO, because I feel like it's like when you use a word like CEO, that's like, you know. I'm the boss. I'm standing in my power. You know, I make decisions, and I feel like we we saw people kind of step into their role as CEO or as leader in different spaces through you know things with the pandemic and obviously other other things in the world. But I feel like that one specifically is a good example, and you can kind of see you know as a studio owner, you are a CEO. As a yoga teacher, who. Is works as an independent contractor, you are a CEO of your business. And some people just don't identify in that way. And I do feel like there is kind of this difference in terms of the way you show up and the way you kind of step forward into the world as a leader.
1: Absolutely. And I think there's a lot of um, resistance to women claiming that word. I think they feel like it is a very masculine, patriarchal, Suit and tie in the corner office that you have to suddenly show up as someone you're not. And I want to challenge that. I think we need to reclaim what being the CEO looks like. Because for me, being the CEO does not mean any of those, you know, old fashioned stuffy things that I think I might have thought two decades ago. To me, now I'm like, you know what? You can be the CEO in a pair of yoga pants and a comfortable top recording a podcast. You can be the CEO leading your team. You can be the CEO in front of your clients and community, um, and do it in your way. The big thing is, like you said, it comes back to being able to make decisions, being confident in your mission, in your values as a company, being clear about what you're here to do. And knowing that when the shit hits the fan, you are the one in charge and don't, we can't just be like, Oh no, something would happen. And then start looking around as like, well, who's the grownup that's going to tell me what to do? Like, no, we're the grownups now, (laughs) which I have to remind myself at 40 sometimes, but like no one else is going to come run your business. No one else is going to come make decisions for you. Um, So it is a mindset shift. It is a huge up-leveling that requires a lot of inner work.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for sharing that. And I think that hopefully that makes some people feel empowered, but I do think you're right, especially in you know, the yoga space. I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of women, there's a lot of females. And I think it does feel masculine to think of ourselves as a CEO. And I think, especially in a heart-centered industry, you know, CEO can feel a little bit, you know, hard, a little bit cold, Um, a little bit, not maybe how we want to identify. So I'm I'm curious for you, especially since you have a lot of experience in the yoga space, you know, how, as maybe like a female entrepreneur, who's struggling with this like masculine sort of title in this heart, in this heart centered industry, how do, how can we step into our power as a CEO and understand that like CEO is just a term and we really get to decide how, you know, how we show up with that.
1: Well, it's just a role. It is just a job description, to be honest. Like at the end of the day, CEO is just a job description. And I think we um, attach a lot of meaning behind what that means. But when you're the owner of your business, you get to write that job description. And that's the exciting part is you get to write the job description of what your role as CEO is. For me, that all comes back to What is the vision for your business? Where are you going? Who are you serving? What are you trying to accomplish in this world? It comes back to your values. What are the guiding principles of your company? What are the things that help you as you're making decisions? Um, So that's one of my favorite things to give my clients is the assignment to write their job description as CEO of this company. What does that look like? for you. And for each of us, it might be a little bit different. I mean, a traditional CEO, yes, they have to come up with the vision and the strategy and lead a team and make decisions. But for those of us who are CEOs of small companies or even micro companies, there's also a lot of things that we have to do for our our businesses um, because we're actually still implementing quite a bit. But what are those key roles for you? In your role as CEO. So for me, it all comes down to clients and community. I'm responsible for connecting with all of my clients, for supporting my community. I'm responsible for content because my business is built on my intellectual property. And I'm responsible for making sure I'm communicating to my team. But those are the three core things I have to do. And to me, that lets me lean into what I'm best at, to my zone of genius, to how I like to work. And I'm aligning my job description as CEO with who I am and how I can show up best in the world, and so I think that's a very different approach. Um, instead of trying to fit like the whole square peg in a round hole, come up with your own you sized hole of what that role is going to look like.
0: Cool, I love that. I think that that's you know sometimes we're trying to like fit into I guess you know what people kind of expect of of us and what society expects of, I guess, the, the role CEO. And I, I love the idea of just kind of making that fit us. Like, like you said, it's just a job title and making us making it fit us and our values and our beliefs and carrying all of that with us. And it can be feminine and it can be soft and heart centered, but we can still step into that power of like, Hey, I'm a leader in this space.
1: Absolutely. It can be fun. I mean, Sometimes it's hard to wrap your head around, but I host a CEO retreat in person and I have all these amazing women who fly in to Richmond, Virginia from all over the country. And when I designed this office space I have downtown, I was like, I want it to be beautiful and inspiring and fun and for everyone to feel a feeling when they walked in And I have a massive pink sectional sofa and I have these illustrations of women CEOs throughout history. And it does something when they see that you can be a CEO and it doesn't mean you have to have like leather furniture and like a really big, like dark wood desk. You can do it in a way that feels good and aligned to you. And for me, um, That is where I want people to be. I want them to feel a feeling. I want them to feel inspired. I want them to feel creative when
0: they come in to work with us. Cool. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Thanks for adding fun to the list of things that that being a CEO can be because I think that that's a great perspective to have. And I want to shift gears just a tiny bit. I want to talk about entrepreneurial poverty because I know that that's a huge thing that you... teaching CEOs about, teaching women about. So can we start by defining what that is and then talk a little bit about how to get out of it?
1: Yes. So over the time I've been working with women specifically, I started to see that there was a lot going on that was very frustrating for women. I saw that while women are the majority of new business owners right now. If you look at the percentage of new businesses that have started over the last decade, majority have been women, specifically women of color at an average age of 44. (laughs) I get really into the numbers and the stats. But at the same time, while women-owned businesses represent 45% of small businesses in the United States of America, they only represent 4% of small business revenue. And I was like, what is happening? And so I kept digging into the numbers. I kept digging into the math. And I learned that for women business owners, only 12% make over $100,000 in top-line gross revenue, which does not cover their expenses or their taxes, right? So we know that your top-line revenue is not what you actually take home, which means if only 12% are bringing home are making 100000 or more a year, they're probably bringing home... 50 to 60. Well, it turns out 75% are making less than $50,000 a year, which means they're probably taking home 30 or 25. And those numbers started to freak me out a little bit, honestly, because I know in most areas of the United States, that is not a livable income. In fact, it's almost at the line of poverty wages. You would have more Money coming into your personal take-home pay if you went and worked at Starbucks, plus you'd have healthcare. <laughs> so I started to wonder what was going on here, and I realized, you know, when we're talking math and numbers and revenue goals with women-owned businesses, it can freak a lot of people out. Um, but there's really three different aspects of this. Yes, there is the entrepreneurial poverty of money. Women entrepreneurs just are not making enough money, and there is a wage gap in entrepreneurship. FreshBooks did a whole study where they found that women. Business owners underprice themselves by average of twenty eight percent less than men doing the exact same work. So there's still a wage gap happening in entrepreneurship, and that's having a huge impact on the longevity—how long women can stay in business um, and actually support themselves. So there's a huge drop-off rate, even though we're starting businesses faster than ever before, we're also shutting them down faster than ever before. And if you're not making enough money, the other things that start to happen. Or you end up in the entrepreneurial uh, poverty of time and energy. Because if you're not making enough money, then you likely cannot afford support. You can't afford support in the business. You can't afford support at home. That means you have to wear all the hats. You are doing all of the jobs, all of the roles. So instead of just having one job being the CEO, you now probably have 10 to 15 jobs you're trying to cover which is exhausting, which leads to the entrepreneurial poverty of energy. We're also in a burnout epidemic. We're seeing so many people who are thinking they're going to find this flexibility and freedom through entrepreneurship, and they aren't. They're leaving a nine-to-five job to work 24-7 as an entrepreneur. There's no delineation between work and life. So energetically, they are depleted. They're beyond depleted. They are running on fumes, not even on empty. They're like on fumes. And so it's creating this scenario where women have so much potential. And I truly believe that more women in leadership positions, more women making more money is the answer to so many problems in our world. Um, But we have to get out of our own way because entrepreneurial poverty of time, energy, and money is going to keep holding us back from making the impact that we can all collectively make.
0: Yeah, for sure. There's so much good stuff to think about there. And I feel like it just makes me think about how, I feel like one of the struggles that a lot of yoga entrepreneurs have, a lot of CEOs in the yoga space have is you know, and this is a beautiful thing is like that, that compassion and that heart centered mind and the community mind and aspect of, of it that they want to bring in. And all of that is beautiful. Like, I don't want that to go away from the yoga space, but I feel like it comes with sometimes this like, Oh, it's fine. You know, do class for free or, Oh, you can't afford your membership. It's fine. I can discount you, or I'll just give you a free one or, you know, oh, well, this is too expensive for people. I want it to be, you know, accessible to everyone. I'll just, you know... Offer it at a price that I'm not you know make turning a profit at. And I feel like this comes with such a tricky ground in terms of what we're talking about with this entrepreneurial poverty. And it makes me look at, you know all these studios that have shut down, especially in the last couple of years, all these amazing yoga teachers who have had to get you know different jobs or switch careers because they haven't been able to afford, you know, what they're doing and i i guess i'm curious for you if you have any thoughts on how we balance this all like how we can have all these beautiful aspects of giving and loving and inclusivity and accessibility while also you know being able to run our businesses in a tough economic landscape
1: yeah i think a huge part of this is embracing the math of your business because you can build all of that generosity into your business model. But if you are trying to pour from an empty cup, then you're just fast tracking the rate at which your business will not last. So one of the first things I do with all of my clients is we have a tool that I'll give to everybody. You can go download it. I think we probably have a link for you called the Get Paid Calculator. And one of the things we do is first we make sure we're super clear about what are the numbers of your business. So what do you need to pay yourself? What is the revenue goal to help you achieve that take-home pay? And then what are the offers and what price point and how many do you need to sell in order to hit that revenue goal? When you want to build generosity into your business model, then you just need to be crystal clear about how that is math is going to work. You want to make sure that, first of all, you actually have profit built into your pricing structure. This is where I see a lot of people um, kind of getting in their own way. They're not building profit into the pricing structure. They're just pulling a price out of thin air. So you actually want to sit down and look at what does it cost to run my business? What does it cost for me to deliver each offer that I have? And then can I make sure there's a profit margin in there that then helps me to grow my business, pay myself, et cetera. You can also build in, like if you want to offer, let's say a scholarship or a pay what you can, or you want to have some sort of, um, philanthropic aspect, like you want to raise money for things. Those need to come with a plan that doesn't take away from your own livelihood. They need to be built into the whole process instead of, taking from your personal paycheck to make that happen. And this is such a huge thing. Um, If you build it into your model, what often I see happen when people go through this process is they're like, okay, I have, let's say you have a private yoga teacher business. And so you have some great private um, clients who are totally happy to work with you long-term. I have one client, Francesca Cervero, who has become a dear, dear friend. And she had clients who had worked with her for 10 years. Like they weren't going anywhere. They loved working with her, but she found there were other things she wanted to do. So for her, for those particular clients, increasing their prices a little bit, they weren't price sensitive. They were going to stay with her regardless. And that actually gave her the flexibility she needed to redirect that resource to somebody else or to another project. And I think that's where if you just get really familiar with your numbers and really familiar with your business model, you can make clearer decisions. You can decide, oh, I'm going to have these clients at this rate so that they can basically subsidize this other thing. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that that's that's super, super helpful because I think that sometimes it's just, especially if we're not... You know, for a lot of yoga teachers and a lot of yoga studio owners, maybe they don't have the business background, the business training, or maybe like you know the accounting kind of finance side of things isn't there. Isn't their strong suit, which is totally fine. Most of us didn't get into yoga for for doing all of that. But I think having that, just that mindset and also that resource is really great. And I know. We've got a link for that. So maybe now is a good time to just share it. So it's the CEO collective.com forward slash yoga. And that takes you right to the get paid calculator that you can get entirely for free. So that's pretty awesome.
1: Yeah. And I love pricing generosity into your business. This is one reason why I'm a huge fan of, especially service based businesses like yoga teachers, to offer more of a high end. Experience for your paying clients because it is really hard to be generous when you are like barely profitable. Like, think about Walmart and how thin their profit margins can be and how they don't pay their team enough. Most of their team is still getting, you know, government assistance. That's been a huge documented fact. You can't be generous if you don't have great profit margins. But if you shift your mindset away from, I want to be the least expensive yoga studio um, or yoga teacher or whatever it is that you're offering, instead say, I want to be a premium level to these people, focus on generating the revenue from the client base who can happily pay it because they want to work with you. And that suddenly gives you the profit margin to do other things. It gives you the profit margin to pay your team. Exceptionally well, it gives you the profit margin to take care of your clients and do like little fun things. Um, and I have people who work with us all the time. They're like, "You're always like." When we had our last CEO retreat, we had a food truck come by, an ice cream truck come by, because it was June in Virginia. It's a million degrees at a thousand percent humidity. So we thought this would be a fun thing to do. And you can't do that if you're not building those things into your profit plan.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that that's a, a really good reminder for everyone. I love the idea of like building generosity in and then remembering that, you know, it's hard to be generous like you said if you're not pulling in profit. And so I'm curious for anyone listening who has maybe been offering a lot of like low-priced offerings in their business, how does this kind of contribute to the entrepreneurial poverty and is it worth it to reconsider our prices and and maybe pivot them?
1: Yeah. I think it's always... Pricing is a conversation you should be having with your business on an annual basis. Um, The get paid calculator will definitely help you look at that. But there there comes a point where increasing your prices isn't enough. You actually need to reevaluate what you're offering. With yoga teachers, I often find like a lot of service-based businesses, they get stuck in this trap of getting paid for an hour of labor, right? They get paid for showing up for that class. They get paid for um, teaching that private session. And this can lead to a challenge because there does often come a point where you're at kind of the top end of the range for what people expect for that. But if you shift from thinking of selling one hour of your time at a time and instead start thinking about what is the outcome or the result of someone working with me? How can I create instead of a one-time experience for somebody, how can I create more of a comprehensive program or package or offer for them? That's where we can get out of that dollar for hour mentality and start thinking about something bigger. So I have another client who she no longer um, teaches one-off classes where people can just drop in. If they're going to participate in her offers, they have to sign up for a full series and commit to that and pay for that. And what that's done is it's eliminated a lot of the struggle that comes or trying to get people to come back class after class, after class, instead it's like, Hey, we're doing this whole series on fixing your hips and releasing the tension in your hips you have to commit to the whole package. And because the outcome is related to a specific result, it's more of a premium level offer. And it actually not only is a benefit to her, the yoga teacher who's going to you know, be making money from this, but it's also a benefit to her clients because now they're held accountable and they will get better results because of that accountability, because of the increased follow-through.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That definitely makes sense. So I think that's really great information to consider for anyone who's maybe feeling like, Hey, this might be time. It might be time for me to change up my prices. And I know, I know it's like, it's tough out there. And I think that one thing that's been particularly tough about the pandemic has been, maybe you were thinking like mid 2020 is the time where I'm going to, you know, bump my drop-in rate from 20 to... Twenty-two, or I'm going to stop offering that drop-in rate, like you mentioned with your client, which I think is a really great idea to get people committed and to have more of a sense of how much money you're making, et cetera, et cetera. Or maybe you know you're a consultant and you were ready to increase your prices, and then boom, pandemic hits, businesses are not thriving, and now it's been you know a couple years of kind of struggling along with that, and now we're in kind of a deeper economic downturn than before, and so definitely is a tough time, but I think that remembering your value, your worth, what you can offer your customers, your students, your clients is, is a super important part of this conversation.
1: Yeah. I think one of the biggest things we can kind of wrap this on for everyone is I think one of the challenges that yoga teachers are going to face going into this economic downturn, the same one we faced last time, the people who are positioned as a option the people whose businesses are positioned as a nice to have to their clients who are considered kind of a luxury to spend money on, they're going to struggle the most in any time of economic uncertainty. The teachers and yoga businesses that are positioned as this is essential to my ability to thrive right now I prioritize this in my life. It is part of my entire way that I, you know, make sure I'm navigating life, especially for people who do carry a lot of stress through economic downturns, also often leaders and professionals and parents, like the people who value what you do will be there through this with you. If you position this to them and, and make sure they're really on board with this is an essential thing for me. This is just as important as drinking my water every day. And I will prioritize it over other ways I could spend my time and my money. Um, That's huge. So don't position yourself as a nice to have. Make sure people who are coming to you to work with you in whatever way you work with them are like, this is such a crucial part of how I take care of myself that I will do whatever I need to do to make sure I can continue it.
0: Yeah, I really love that. So thanks for sharing that. And I think that that's, you know, need to have versus nice to have is a great reminder. And so just, I know we've talked a lot about this stuff already, but are there any final kind of business lessons that you've learned through your career that you want to share with listeners here today, Rachel? Yeah, so many. So I, that's like, how do I pick
1: <laughs> the one that will be the it's most? Like, do we have another hour? <laughs> I know we might. You know, I think one of the biggest ones that I especially think for a lot of the yoga teachers and business owners, um, and honestly just so many women in general have to, to navigate is our own money mindset and our own relationship with money. Um, that is probably one of the biggest things I've personally had to work on, When it comes to like hearing about pricing and increasing your prices or changing to a more premium business model, those things can stir up all sorts of money wounds. And you have to really be willing to excavate that just like anything you're working out on the mat. um, I know a lot of us use yoga as a way to work through different things going on in our life and to process a lot of things, but we can't be afraid to use that same practice with our money. And just remember that, um, the more you understand, the more you learn, the more you can figure out about your relationship to money, the easier it will be as a business owner to not make it mean something about you, about you as an individual person.
0: Amazing. Thank you for sharing that. And can you share with listeners where they can go to find you?
1: Yeah. Since you're listening to a podcast, come check out, promote yourself to CEO. That's my podcast. Would love to have you listen into some conversations about scaling a sustainable service-based business without the hustle and burnout. And you can also find me over at theceocollective.com. And as we mentioned, we have the get paid calculator available for you all absolutely free of charge to help you figure out the right revenue goal, the right pricing for your offers. And that will be at com slash yoga.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much for your time today, for that free resource that you've gifted myself and listeners, and just for all of your insight and knowledge and everything you do for everything you've done for the yoga community. And now for all the entrepreneurs out there, it's been such a treat to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for tuning in for this episode of the podcast. To find links, notes, resources, and everything mentioned in today and all episodes of the show, you can head on over to mbomyoga.com. You can find the podcast and myself on Facebook and social media at Mastering the Business of Yoga. And I would love for you to join the private Facebook community, Yoga Business Badasses. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, please make sure you reach out to me at info at mbmyoga.com. And last of all, if you enjoyed this episode of the show, please make sure you hit subscribe and leave a review for the podcast. It would mean the world. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next week. Namaste.